Jazz Notes podcast, Ben Anderson, Chandler Holt, October 3rd, as the uh, NBA season is right around the corner. And we had a media day yesterday. We've got a preseason game on Sunday. We are very close to Utah Jazz basketball officially being underway. I'm very excited for it. Yesterday, the media day was a ton of fun. Got to talk to all the players. Um, I have a question for you. Who do you think was the best interview of the day? Of course, mm. that's subjective, but... Let's see. Let me pull up the list of who all talked yesterday, and I think we can walk through this a little bit because maybe you missed it. We had it all on uh, the KSL Sports Zone. We've got all the podcasts there as well. You can go to kslsports.com and find them and get a breakdown. Of course, we're going to talk about uh, Media Day throughout the show. We'll talk about the latest Jazz 50, a couple of the other things going out uh, around uh, NBA Media Days across the league, and then uh, we will get into your questions that we always like to do as well. Best interview for the Utah Jazz yesterday. We talked to Micah Potter, Johnny Juzang, Bryce Sensabaugh, Taylor Hendricks, Keontae George, Ochai Abaji, Simone Fontecchio, Taylor Horton Tucker, Walker Kessler, Lucas Shamanich, Colin Sexton, Romeo Langford, which we should touch on that. That was interesting. Uh, Jordan Clarkson, John Collins, Chris Dunn. I, that was the only one I missed. You covered that one. Kelly Olenek, Omer Yurtsevin, and Larry Markinen. I probably, honestly, enjoyability might have been Kelly because he was coming off a great summer and, you know, won a medal with Canada and is going to the Olympics next year and was fine. I asked him a question about coming off the bench and he wasn't grumpy about it, which was nice. I didn't know how he was going to respond to that because I don't know if they've officially told him he's coming off the bench. I just think we all assume he's coming off the bench because John Collins is going to start and that's what the front court's going to look like. Um, But yeah, Kelly was surprising because he's not always actually all that warm. He can feel prickly sometimes, even though I don't think he is. I think I've said this before, though. He's just the guy who you'll be like, Kelly, what do you think about coming off the bench? And he's like, you think I'm coming off the bench? Like, he will be that guy sometimes. So, And he doesn't mean it in a mean way. It's just how he answers. So uh, I'll, I'll say Kelly is my surprising, enjoyable conversation. You? This was your first media day. What were your takeaways? Um, to me, the best interview is easy. I'd say it was John Collins. It started off on a very high note. One of the reporters asked, uh, John, like, I don't remember exactly how it was worded, but they basically asked, like, how does it feel to get traded to a spot that you may not want to be in Utah? And he said, hey, don't put words in my mouth. I- I'm excited to be here. I was born here. I have ties here, yeah. and I'm excited for the season. Yeah, and- I think Tony Jones asked him, like, I know you don't claim Utah as your home. He's like, whoa, yes, I do, which earlier this summer he said he didn't. So <laughs> <laughs> he's he's waffling a little bit. But, uh, yeah, he, seems, he seemed excited to be here. Uh, and I agree, he actually— even in his Twitter post or his Instagram post that he had about leaving Atlanta, I was surprised at how candid he was. He's like, my essentially development has been has paused here, and I need to continue to grow as a player, so I got to get out of Atlanta. But I think thanks to everyone who allowed me to be here. Like that was crazy. That was a that was a weirdly non PC answer I thought from John Collins. Uh, and everything I've heard from people in Atlanta is that he's just absolutely a fabulous dude and fun to be around. So he's been a little bit more frank than I had expected, a little bit more honest, and not so Mike Conley, who's never had a bad thing to say about anybody ever on the planet, including you know Memphis and some of the places they've wronged him and will never say anything bad about the Jazz, even though I'm sure he doesn't love how his time played out here. Uh, John Collins has not quite been that way. And I'm not sure how John Collins is going to fit. I think that was the other big question that I take away that I took away. And I think everyone's aware that it's a little bit clunky. I had a ton of fun, though. It was a great experience. And I agree, Kelly was a great interview. I would say the top three was John Collins, Kelly Linick, and then Walker Kessler. He was out there cracking jokes from the jump, saying he's a grandpa at 22 years old, saying the grandkids weren't treating him too well. Um, 
But it was a great time getting to talk to everyone. Simone Fontecchio, he said that, of course, he felt that Italy got a little bit unlucky in the FIBA tournament, but he had a great time, and he said that he had to adjust to his new role, but he's excited to be back with the season just around the corner. And uh, Jordan Clarkson always sincerely feels happy to be in every room he's in, which is a real nice thing to be around when you cover a team for 82 games and you see each other every day and they're tired and they've played back-to-back or they're in a losing streak. Jordan always legitimately seems happy to be alive, and I appreciate that because he could be unhappy about being in Utah. He could be unhappy about being on a team while he's in his prime that is not competing for a title, but he's happy. He's got his money. He's got his kid. He's got his girlfriend. He was in a near-fatal bus crash, it sounds like, and uh, if you missed that story, you can find it at kslsports.com. But, yeah, he was touring with his girlfriend in Europe. She's a somewhat big pop star in Europe, has not quite broken through on the U.S. charts, but some of her songs have reached pretty high uh, in Europe, and they were traveling, and he said the bus driver got sick and passed out, and the bus swerved off the road, and nobody died. Everyone was okay, but they ended up spending uh, 14 hours in a German rest stop so uh and he was fine about it which a lot of guys would not be so yeah jordan's always a pleasure i love how he casually dropped that bomb on us he was asked if he had anything interesting happen to him this summer and he said oh i don't know if it's interesting but i was in a bad bus crash in germany (laughs) i mean traveling with your you know superstar girlfriend across europe is in itself an interesting storyline and then to mix near death in there uh is certainly fascinating i thought colin sexton was happy i i also i always kind of misinterpret or don't know what to expect from Colin, and he always delivers not quite the Jordan Clarkson level of joy and cheeriness, but he's always positive. He's always, like, happy to be playing basketball. He doesn't seem at all frustrated about being in Utah. We've all seen the shirt. I can't use the language on a KSL Sports podcast, <laughs> but we're like, this this place is nice, is, is basically what, what he likes about Utah. And he says he wants to play all 82 games for the Jazz this year. And look, if he can bounce back and be who he was a couple of seasons ago, it seems like Justin Zanuck and Danny Ainge are betting on guys who have had big seasons on losing teams, thinking it's the big season that counts. It's not the losing team that matters. It's They showed their talent in the NBA, and we think if we put enough of those guys together, that will break through. It doesn't just have to be, quote-unquote, winning guys. John Collins' best season, 22-10, and 10, came on like a 29-win Atlanta Hawks team. Colin Sexton's best season, 24-4-4, and, four and four, was on a 22-win Cleveland Cavaliers team. Lowry Markinen's best season, even last year, was not on a winning team. But before that, he never really played for a winning team, but they said they believed in his talent level. It's a little bit of a radical experiment that I will be curious if it works. If you get guys who have put up big numbers on bad teams, if you put enough of them on the same team together, if you can get victories out of it. My favorite quote from Media Day came from Chris Dunn at the very end of that. He was asked what he learned about himself last year because Chris Dunn's bounced all over the league. He's been in different roles. He was drafted in the lottery by the Bulls back in a few years ago. About Do you know what draft that was? Uh, 2016. That sounds about Something right. Something like that. But yeah, they, he was asked what he learned about himself last year, and he answered quite simply that I'm a dog. <laughs> uh, Chris, did you only learn that last year? Because I feel like I've known that about you for a really long time. Uh, I watched you your rookie year with Minnesota, and you were a dog then. You just were, like, up in people's shorts the entire game. Like, you're just that guy. You're the guy who dislocated his teeth when they bounced off the floor and left a mark on an NBA hardwood floor because of how hard his teeth bounced off the ground. We knew you were a dog, man. (laughs) Yeah, we knew that. Uh, But good for him. He came back. Chris Dunn remains my player that every contender would sign the second they hit the waiver wire. Uh, If the Jazz were to get rid of Chris Dunn, 
on the last day of the preseason and say we're going to go into the year with only 14 guaranteed contracts, Chris Dunn would have a spot on Phoenix, the Lakers, Milwaukee. Certainly, they don't really have a true backup point guard. They just had to go sign Campaign, who I'm not a huge fan of. Uh, Boston, like every team needs Chris Dunn. Chris Dunn rules. I love Chris Dunn as a basketball player. And then I like him as a person as well. I don't know how much to believe in his numbers last year. Uh, 22 games with the Jazz. He shot a eye-popping 53% from the floor and an absurd 47% from three. But he was taking one and a half attempts a game. Like, it wasn't, you know, zero attempts. Uh, in fact, when he shot a little bit more, he's tended to, to shoot okay from the three-point line in his career. So I actually believe in his numbers a little bit more. And again, that's why I think he's going to be the Jazz starting point guard on opening night. But yeah, Chris Dunn, he gave a lot of gems, honestly. Again, another thing, this is a great mindset that uh, in this quote here that he gave. He said, I'm a sponge. I'll even go up to the rookies and see what they think. Training camp is where we compete and learn from each other. Having that mindset is perfect. I mean, in the NBA or whatever pres- whatever sport you're playing, you want to get better every day. And why not learn something from someone younger than you? Everyone has a different upbringing in the sport, so everyone has something to offer. One of the most interesting practices I watched last year was Chris Dunn and Walker Kessler playing one-on-one against each other, just doing drills. And Chris Dunn walking Walker through footwork on the perimeter Dog, when you switch, this is how your feet have to move. Like, you, when you're defending on the perimeter, you can't defend like you're in the pain anymore. Like, you have to move your feet differently. It's a different science. And Chris Dunn is the best perimeter defender that the Jazz have and knows how to do that. And now he's got blazing fast speed, but he's even lost some of that with his ankle injuries and his knee injuries that he's had. And he still has great technique as a defender. And he was showing Walker Kessler how to do it. And then he would beat Walker Kessler off the dribble, and then Walker would recover and was so long he would swat his, his, his shot out of bounds. So... It was a fun battle, but if I'm a coach and I'm Will Hardy and I'm saying, hey, man, I can't teach every player everything, but if I can have Chris Dunn out there to talk to Bryce Sensabaugh, Taylor Hendricks, and then most importantly, Keontae George, and Keontae touched on this yesterday, he said, yeah, man, Chris Dunn's teaching me how to play defense, and he's been a high-level defensive player for seven years now. Uh, I'm going to listen to what he has to say that's the type of guy I want around my young players, even if he's only here for a year. That is a former lottery pick who washed out of the league because of injuries and because his game was a little antiquated and he had to evolve and gladly went back to the Capital City Go-Go in the G League, earned his way back onto a non-guaranteed NBA roster, played his butt off on a team that wasn't going to make the playoffs in the Jazz, and then re-signed in the offseason for a chance just to stick around because he appreciates how hard it is to make the NBA and what it means to be there. It's a privilege to be in the NBA. I want my young guys around that guy as much as possible. I wouldn't even think about waving Chris Dunn, barring a significant injury, I would assume his contract is basically guaranteed unless he gets hurt. Definitely. Going back to John Collins for one more thing, I think that this was like the best sign to come from a new addition to the Jazz roster. He said, I'd say the one thing that has surprised me is the lack of ego here. It's refreshing to have a group of guys that truly emphasize playing team basketball and that want to do so. I don't know if that was a shot at Atlanta or truly just a great thing about being here in Utah, but I think that's a great sign for the Jazz roster. It seems like he's buddies with Trey Young, and then I think some of the things feel slightly thinly veiled as shots at at, at Atlanta. And I don't think he's taking shots. I do think he is trying to be honest about the Jazz and saying, hey, this is fun to be here. This is where I want to be. And they certainly certainly seem to play a way that I'm not familiar with. And that is probably one of the reasons why the Jazz historically are pretty successful. And you don't get a lot of guys with huge egos. And even the players that do have big egos, Rudy had a big ego. Donovan's ego certainly grew over time. 
they find a way to mesh and allow them to work together. But I, I agree. I wrote a whole article on John Collins refreshing a new environment in Utah and some of the things that he had said. Uh, he's excited to be here. I think it will be a breath of fresh air for him. Whether or not that actually translates to being comfortable on the floor is a whole different story because, you know, I, I think at his best, I talked about this on my radio show the other day, you know, at his best, John Collins' three-point shooting numbers, the attempts weren't any different. The makes were a little bit different, but the attempts weren't a ton different. His 22-point-per-game season, 21-and-a-half technically, he took 3.6 threes a game. Last year, he took 3.4. I mean, that's one three every five games fewer. You know, like that's that's not a huge difference on where his shots are coming from on the perimeter. Now, he was making them at 40% in 2020. He only made them at 29% last year. But I think it has more to do with the fact that he was taking as far as shots inside the arc. He was getting four and a half more per game inside the arc, which is probably dunks and layups and easy shots. And last year, he only got 10 uh, total field goals, including his three and a half threes. In 2020, he got four. 14, almost 15 threes, 14, or uh, field goal attempts, excuse me, 14.8 field goal attempts and 3.6 of those are threes, meaning he was getting 11 shots inside the arc every game. Do the Jazz have 11 shots inside the arc every night for Collins sex, or for uh, John Collins? If they do, maybe his engagement level is higher, and there are guys historically in the NBA, Chandler, that need touches to be engaged. Most notably in, in jazz history, Andre Karolinko, they would drop the very first play of the game of him for him offensively to touch the ball. They did it for Derek Favors. Sometimes those guys, to be at their best, need to see touches, and, and can Will Hardy manufacture that? And going deeper than touches, he's in a completely different offense than what he was in with the Hawks. The Hawks had a lot of ball screens. You know, They had a great playmaker up top with Trey Young. John Collins came, set picks for Trey, and then rolled. He could catch those lobs. But now the Jazz offense is a lot of off-ball movement, off-ball screens. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how he can perform in that kind of offense. Uh, one of the things they do is they cut to the basket a lot. The Jazz do. That was one of the things I noticed quickly about Will Hardy's offense. Lowry Markinen was good at it. Cutting to the basket, if you've ever played pickup basketball, it stinks. There's no guarantee you're going to get the ball, and you're running into traffic. Like, there's a legitimate chance it you're not going to get injured, but you're going to get hurt. Like, you're going to go knee to knee with somebody. You're going to get bumped. It's not fun to do to cut to the basket, uh, and that's something Will Hardy asks his guys to do. And if John Collins is willing to do it, he will get a lot of opportunities to score at the rim if he's starting on the perimeter and cutting in. If they have... You know, him playing backup center essentially with Kelly Olynyk at the four and Kelly Olynyk standing out at the three-point line and John Collins is in that dunker spot, maybe they can manufacture looks that way. But that's the big question for me heading into the season. What does John Collins' offensive setup look like? His positioning. Where do they put him? We can talk about marketing in that media day really quick and then move on. Um, he looked good. He said that he is completely done with his uh, Finland military service. Um, and he also gave a great quote on being a leader. You know, he's still a younger guy. He's not He's not a, a big vet. He's been in the league for a while, so he is considered a veteran. But he said, I always try to show up and lead by example, holding each other accountable and trying to be more connected with the guys. We still have older guys, and we all step up. I asked Luka Shamanich about being a leader in the U.S. when you come from Europe and if that's difficult to do. And he said European leadership is a little bit different. It's not the best player on the team. It's the oldest guy on the team. And I thought that was really fascinating. I'd never thought about that before. But even in Canada, you know, Kelly Olynyk was the leader on that Team Canada FIBA World Cup team. He's not the best player. That's Shea Gilgis-Alexander, but Kelly was the was the captain. Kelly was the leader of that roster, and that means a lot to him. And you've seen that in Europe. We've seen some of these guys who who go overseas and play for a long time and really have 
some significance on the roster just by being the elder statesman more so than just saying, oh, well, yeah, he's the best player on the team. He's a, he's a star in the NBA, so of course he's going to be a star in Europe. He's still good, but he's not the culture setter. Uh, and Lowry Markinen is not necessarily a culture setter through and through the way we've seen some players in the NBA as far as being the best player on their team and also being the leader in that sense. So I do wonder if the Jazz can find leadership elsewhere. I don't think that's Jordan Clarkson's nature either even though he's one of the older players on this roster. And again, I think it's another reason why I would keep Chris Dunn around. I think Chris Dunn has huge leadership qualities, even if he's not the biggest barker and he's you know trying to just make sure he belongs in the NBA and can stick around for a while. I think he has some leadership qualities naturally based on what he's been through. Uh, he's, he's the third longest tenured NBA player on the Jazz at seven years. Jordan Clarkson is number nine going into his 10th season. Kelly Olynyk going into his 11th. So I think if you can rely on those guys, and to that point, you know, both uh, John Collins and Larry Markkinen have both been there for six. Uh, I'll be curious who emerges, but I think Chris Dunn has a chance to be a real kind of the savvy vet, ball-in-hand, floor general guy uh, that takes some leadership there. Because I, I just never betting on Larry Markkinen having that as a strength. I just don't think, it's just not who he is. He's an introvert. Naturally, he's an introvert. So I don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's ever going to be his calling card. Moving on, about a week ago, the Jazz finalized their coaching staff for the upcoming year. Of course, there's Will Hardy at the top, but then there's also, uh, how do you say this last name? Chad, is it Forcier? Forcier. Forcier. Yeah. Rick Higgins, might Scott be Morrison. Forcier. I, I, I waffled. I, I saw several <laughs> different pronunciations. It might be Forcier. In addition, we have Rick Higgins, Scott Morrison, and Mike Williams. Uh, first, we can talk about Scott Morrison. He was the head coach for the Salt Lake City Stars last year, and um, a bunch of players at Media Day, specifically the players who have spent some time down there in the G League, had great things to say about him. Uh, dry sense of humor, everyone said. I've interviewed him before. He, yeah, I, I asked him, you know, what does this uh, star's job mean for you? He goes, it means a paycheck for me. Like <laughs> He's like, I was in the NBL in Australia last year, like, and I didn't have a job, and I got offered this job, so I took it because it meant I had a seat on the bus. I mean, that's a that, that was pretty frank. And then I asked him about Will Hardy. He said, yeah, Will Hardy took my job in Boston. He was an assistant on Brad Stevens' staff, and they replaced him with Will Hardy when uh, Ime Udoka moved over as well. So it was, you know, kind of frank, but clearly they're buddies. Like, I don't think Will Hardy's just doing him a solid because he took his job in Boston. First of all, I don't think that's really how the league works. You know, guys are always moving and changing jobs when you're a coach. There's not really taking somebody's job necessarily, and clearly they seem to be buddies, and Will Hardy has said, you know, Scott Morrison was basically an assistant coach with the Jazz last year. He was in all the meetings when the Jazz were at home. He was at every home game, uh, as long as the Stars were also in Salt Lake City at the same time. And then he'd come in, and he's a master ta uh, tactician. Apparently, he's quite the X's and O's genius, especially on the offensive end. So I, I think you're starting to see Will Hardy shape his staff a little bit more the way he wanted. Some of these other guys we, we mentioned I, we, I don't know a ton about and we don't need to dive all that deep in, but are guys that you know he'd worked with in San Antonio and, and some guys who have some championship experience. So he's trying to build a staff of, of a, a few veterans, but really more younger guys that are going to have a chance to be a head coach elsewhere. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can talk about, uh, obviously, the huge moves across the NBA over the last week. Uh, we'll get into the Jazz 50 and uh, answer your mailbag questions. If we got any, I don't know if we got any. Uh, stick around, more Jazz Notes coming up next. All right, welcome back. Let's get into, uh, Chandler, some of the big trades that happened. We talked about this last Tuesday. 
and kind of speculated whether or not we thought this Damian Lillard trade would be done by the weekend, and I wasn't so sure. And then, uh, I mean, it wasn't that long after we talked that uh, Dame got sent to Milwaukee. I, am I wrong? We talked about Milwaukee being one of the teams that could potentially land Dame. Uh, we said he didn't make sense in a lot of spots. We said he made sense in Boston. He made sense in Miami. He made sense in Milwaukee and Philadelphia. I didn't get the Toronto Raptors stuff, and ultimately that didn't come to fruition. I was surprised at, I guess, a somewhat low price, I, I would say, that Milwaukee paid to get Dame. But I think the return that Portland got was pretty fair. Milwaukee's actual trade, uh, Drew Holiday's a big deal. Don't get me wrong. Drew's a winner and one of the best two-way players in the NBA, maybe the best perimeter defender in the NBA, and a steady point guard, not a not an offensive superstar by any means, but a good player on the offensive side of the ball, pretty consistent shooter, struggled in the playoffs. Uh, Grayson Allen, whatever. I mean, I like, I've always been a fan of Grayson Allen. I was kind of carrying his flag uh, before the Jazz drafted him, is like, that's an NBA guy, and he's going to be in the NBA for a decade, I promise you. And I got some pushback on that, and I'm going to take my victory lap now <laughs> that he's been in the NBA for, you know, five or six years and is going to be around for a long time now. Um, but that's not a lot to give up to get a player of Dame's caliber. And, and I think Dame is better than Drew Holiday. I don't think that's really arguable. Now, if you want to say the fit, doesn't work as well. That's one thing. Chandler actually talked to somebody who knows way more about basketball than I do, and they weren't a huge fan of Dame. This was like somebody I was really surprised said that. They weren't a huge fan of Damian Lillard, and they were saying, what happens in two months when people are starting to say, like, hey, you know, Drew didn't make that mistake defensively. Like, Dame, you got you to gotta pick it up. And when Dame can't do it because he can't defend, you start to f- find some cracks in that Milwaukee team, and then the pressure of Giannis leaving – comes back tenfold because it's not working with Dame. Then it gets really scary. That was kind of what they thought might happen. I'm not quite sold on that. I'm a believer in Dame. I'm a believer in his winning attitude. Uh, And I think he'll be willing to play a little bit more of an adaptable style to Giannis Antetokounmpo. But maybe I'm wrong. Where are you on the Dame trade? I honestly really like it. I like it at face value. Of course, you have no clue how it'll play out for any of the three teams involved as of right now. But... Damian Lillard is the best player that Giannis has ever played with, and vice versa. And I think the Suns are the most iffy in this scenario. When you're looking at specifically the roster, and that's it, they trade DeAndre Ayton for four role players when they already have Beal, KD, and Booker up top, so they're getting more depth, which is what they desperately needed. And then the Trailblazers, also with their backs against the wall with the whole Damian Lillard uh, situation, they get a pretty good return back. I don't know if it was the best they could have gotten, but I think that... Suns may be the biggest loser here because you're trading DeAndre Ayton, a first overall pick from not that long ago, for a bunch of role players, right? And DeAndre Ayton was drafted ahead of Luka Doncic, All-NBA player, Trey Young, All-NBA player, and Jaron Jackson Jr., Defensive Player of the Year last year, and then you get him away for not much, to be honest. I mean, it will help your roster this year because you needed depth, but I really don't know how I feel about it for Uh, them. Again, I like... Grayson Allen as a player. I've I've said it. He's an NBA player. That doesn't mean he's a guy I want to rely on in the conference finals going up against, you know, Jamal Murray or whoever he's going to draw for 10 minutes a night that he's on the floor. I don't believe in that. And and look, I don't believe in DeAndre Ayton either. I'm not a huge DeAndre Ayton guy, but I believe in him more than Yusuf Nurkic. And if Frank Vogel is this, like, defensive big man whisperer turned Roy Hibbert into a defensive player of the year guy— like, man, wouldn't you at least give DeAndre Ayton a try? 
and be switchy on the perimeter and like allow you to play some because conceivably DeAndre Ayton should be able to switch in situations where you need him to switch because I've seen him do it or drop because he's seven feet tall and he's really athletic like he can play both styles of defense and I think you need to be able to play both you could even put him in some zone if you want to start doing what Miami does a lot of and I don't think Nurkic is that athletic I know he's only 28 years old so it's not like he's 35 but he kind of moves like he's 35 so that's my problem with Nurkic I I hated what Phoenix did I didn't get that trade at all for them and I suspect you know worst case scenario hold on to DeAndre for three months get him back to all-star level and then trade him like Nurkic Nurkic stinks and then he can't (laughs) play and he also wasn't that likable in Portland like he had issues from like an emotional standpoint with the roster at times so Maybe I'm way off. Maybe there's something I'm totally missing there, uh, and it's just like weird, like short roll stuff that is really into the minutia of the NBA of things that Nurkic can do and DeAndre Ayton can't. But I, I, I didn't like that at all. As far as Portland's return goes, it, it's a this like tidal wave of things, and then I think if you separate them out one by one, I also don't know how much I actually like it. But you couldn't keep Dame. I've been a I, I've been you know saying they need to trade Damian Lillard since maybe two years ago now at this point, like it was clear it wasn't ever going to work. Malcolm Brogdon, which is who you got for Drew. Another Boston Celtics first round pick in the future. That's, that's a decent asset, but Boston's always good. Like, I don't think that's going to be a top five pick you're going to get from them. You've got a future Milwaukee pick. Maybe they're a disaster. Maybe that's the most valuable asset you have. It's a 2030 unprotected Milwaukee pick. You've got two pick swaps from them also in, what, 2029 and 2031, or maybe it's 2030 and 2028, whatever. Uh, you get DeAndre Ayton, who, again, I don't like actually that much individually. You get Malcolm Brogdon, who you're going to flip, and maybe you get something for him. I just like it. Individually, I start looking at all these pieces. Robert Williams, I don't want to miss Robert Williams, who I like on a championship contending team when he's playing 20 minutes a night and I hate him playing behind DeAndre Ayton for 15 minutes. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. So individually, I don't actually like the pieces that much. And if I were to weigh it, to bring this back locally, against, like, what the Jazz got for Donovan Mitchell, which now is a borderline all-NBA player and all-star starter and three future firsts on a team that might lose Donovan Mitchell next summer because they have to trade him, like, that still looks like probably a better trade than what you had in Dame, but maybe that's fair. Maybe Donovan was a better trade asset, even though he's not as good as Dame, in my opinion. He's younger, he doesn't cost as much, and he's got more time to perform. Talking about Portland, I actually like this compared to especially what you were looking at getting from the Miami Heat, which yes. is Tyler Hero and what else? Um, and Tyler Hero probably wouldn't have even gone there. But you have Scoot Henderson, you have Shaden Sharp, you have Anthony Simons, so you're good on guards. That's why... You brought in Drew, traded him right away. You have Brogdon, and there's rumors they're trying to get him out of there as well. But I actually saw that they were planning on playing Aiton at the four, which he says is his natural position, and Robert Williams at the five, which is kind of weird because Scoot Henderson isn't a great shooter, and Shaden Sharp isn't that great of a shooter, and then you're going to play Aiton and Williams together who can't shoot, which doesn't make sense. It's not going to work. Yeah, it doesn't make sense with modern spacing. It's it's going to be an interesting team. I think of the rebuilding teams, they'll be one of the more fun teams to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love, I absolutely love what Joe Cronin did. He, Damian Lillard put him in a tough spot, saying, "Trade me to Miami or no one, nowhere else." Yep. And then he says, after Miami is offering them two cents and a bag of chips, he says, "Okay, Dame, are you okay with going here?" And after he got that green light. He's he's gonna make trades to make the two other contenders in the yeah. East much better teams, and I think that was great from him. Really quick, we can talk about this from the Bucks' perspective, and then we'll move on. 
I really like the duo of Lillard and Antetokounmpo because when you look at other great duos in the NBA right now, a lot of duos have very similar play styles. Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are both ISO scorers. Anthony Davis and LeBron James are both bully ball sort of players. They can stretch the floor a little bit. Um, and then you have, like, going back, you have uh, Clay and Steph Curry. They're both deep shooters. But Giannis and Lillard, they complement each other so well. Their games are so different. And I think that outside of Giannis running to the rim and Damian Lillard shooting from far, they can have a pretty deadly pick and roll, I'm assuming. I'm really excited to watch the Bucks this year. I scoffed a little bit. There was a Nuggets assistant coach last year. I can't remember who it was who said, I think we have Stockton and Malone in uh, – Jokic and Jamal Murray. And I thought, like, well, that's lofty. (laughs) Uh, And then they won the title. They achieved more than Stockton and Malone ever did. And I'm like, oh, maybe you did have Stockton and Malone. (laughs) Like, you had a pretty unstoppable big man, small man duo where they can score every single time they want down the floor. And now I look at the Bucks and I'm thinking, well, nobody already can stop Giannis and nobody's ever stopped Dame. So I guess you just have two unstoppable offensive players. And then around them, you just have space. You just have shooters in Splash Mountain, Brooke Lopez, and Chris Middleton, who's great. And then you got to find, like, that other starter, whatever. Okay, I can make that work. If it's Bobby Portis or Jay Crowder or whatever you decide you want to do with that spot, someone in the backcourt probably, uh, you'll make that work. So I think that's fine. And then my problem, every time I've tried to fix Denver, or excuse me, Portland, when Damian Lillard was there, I was like, man, they could really use a good defender behind him. And now he, they have two of the best rim protectors in the NBA, and Giannis, who might just be the best defender, period, in the league, and Brooke Lopez, who is probably the best rim protector in the NBA, behind him. So, like, yeah, he's flawed. He's seriously flawed, but they can erase a lot of mistakes, and then offensively, they give their defense a lot of wiggle room to not be great, but, you know, I I, I think Milwaukee's the favorite to win the title. That's who I would bet on. I would probably still put Denver number two. Maybe I'd put Boston at number three, because they have a little more championship experience now. I think Drew's an upgrade over Marcus Smart. He's just a better player, but he does a lot of the same things. They're betting a lot on Chris Tapps. Yes. Uh, And I don't fully believe in Chris Tapps, but again, it's a funny thing that I think writers do versus like people inside the NBA do that's different, which is that people inside the NBA are like, he's seven foot four. He shoots 40% from three and scores 25 points a night. Like, what are you mad at? What do you not like about Chris Tapps' Porzingis? And I like, nitpick like oh, I don't like he plays soft here and he does this and like he's seven foot four he shoots 40 percent from three and he scores 25 points a night like stop nitpicking that's what you want to have on your team that's what you want to do that works that helps that's hard to beat so uh NBA people seem to like that a little bit more than maybe I do but yeah maybe I'd put Boston at three I guess Phoenix at four again I don't love what Phoenix is doing I've told you maybe the Lakers would be my dark horse to win the title this year so I might even have Phoenix down at like five but We'll see. Maybe maybe I'm way off on Phoenix. They still have Kevin Durant. They still have uh, Devin Booker. They've got Bradley Beal. Maybe he bounces back and can score 30 efficiently. I don't know. But yeah, that, we'll find out all those playoff questions in 2024. But this week, the NBA preseason is here. First game is on Thursday, just a few days from now. Uh, the I believe it's the Mavericks and the Timberwolves will be playing in Abu Dhabi. And then on the 8th and the 10th, the Jazz will be playing their first preseason games against the Clippers on the 8th in Hawaii and then on the 10th in Seattle. Um, and then opening night is just three weeks from today. Uh, the Thursday game's at 10 a.m. So this Thursday, Mavs, Timberwolves, local interest, Dante Exum retaking the floor, former Jazz number 5 overall pick, uh, making his Mavericks debut going up against Rudy Gobert and Mike Conley. So that'll be fun to watch. Uh, I'm... I love the preseason. I notoriously was not a high school partier. Maybe I've already told this story on the podcast. I apologize. 
I went to a high school party. It was like a it was like a, like a high school, like a traditional, like stereotypical high school party that you would see in a movie. A bunch of people there, and uh, I sat on the couch the whole time. Didn't pick up anything to drink because that was not my thing. Didn't pick up any food, and I watched a Sacramento Kings Houston Rockets preseason game because it was being played in China because Yao Ming was on the roster, and it tipped off at like 11 p.m. and my parents didn't have cable, and I was like, I'm. Of course I'm going to the party. It's in a rich neighborhood, and they're going to have cable, and I'm going to take over the TV, and I'm going to watch a Kings-Rockets preseason game at 11 p.m. at night, and the cops came and broke up the party, and I like just casually got up and left because like I'm not doing anything illegal unless being a dweeb is illegal, and it's not. I checked. Uh, I'm a dweeb. I'm a basketball dweeb, so if I watch that game at 11 p.m. at night, I'll watch this game at 10 a.m. in the morning, so I'm excited for it. And then, yeah, Sunday— Jazz taking on the Clippers, and we will start to get all of these answers of what does Keontae George look like. I've never seen, I've never seen Taylor Hendricks play an important game of basketball. I watched him at Central Florida. I watched him be the best player on teams. I watched him play against the top five Houston team. He's good. I want to see what he does in the NBA. Uh, in early returns, I will say this on what I've heard of people who have seen these guys in open gym have been pretty promising. People really liked what Keontae George is doing. Taylor Hendricks is apparently hitting shots, very active on the defensive side of the ball, which is important for him. He's got to run really hard, but he's fast. That was one of the things he did at Central Florida. If he can run the floor hard, he will get four to five points a night in transition just by being really fast, starting a transition with a, with a block shot and just getting out and running. That might be his best offensive weapon outside of his three-point shooting. And then, again, Bryce Sensabaugh is so weird. He's just such a weird guy as far as his game style. Really bulky, though he told us yesterday he slimmed down. He kind of plays in slow motion. He just gets to his spots. He knows how to get a shot off against anybody, and it goes in at a really high clip, which is a skill. Again, the number one job in the in basketball is to score the basketball. It's why those guys get paid the most. It's why we draft those guys the highest, even though, ironically, he fell to 28 because of a knee injury. <laughs> but the job is to score. You win by having the most points. That's the only way you win games is by having the most points, and he can score. So that gives him a real chance to uh, be an NBA player. Bryce Sensabaugh reminds me of uh, a more compact uh, Kyle Anderson of the Grizzlies. Okay. Yeah, I think if he can do that, that would be fabulous. Kyle is so, and now the Timberwolves, he is so cerebral. He is so smart. He might be the smartest player in the NBA. Uh, Bryce would have to learn a lot to do that. You know, one of the things Kyle Kyle Anderson's always been slow. Like, he, he was named slow-mo at UCLA. Yes. Uh so he's always had to like think the game at a super high level. That doesn't mean Bryce Sensabaugh can't do it. You know, uh, we will see. I, you know, what I like about Bryce Sensabaugh. For going back to one of my favorites, rebounds. That dude rebounds the ball. <laughs> so uh, I'll, I'll be uh, I'll be very curious to see him as well. Because also we talk about Taylor Hendricks never playing an important game. Bryce Sensabaugh truly has never played an important <laughs> game. That Ohio State team stunk last year, and he just got a bunch of touches. So uh, could be all fool's gold for. Uh, for Bryce Sensabaugh, but but I'm excited to watch the young players. I, I, I think that's what is probably going to mold the Jazz season as far as a big-picture standpoint. John Collins' success, Collins Sexton's success, probably colors it most closely as far as, you know, what happens as far as their final record come April or May. We're getting down to the best of the best in the Jazz Top 50. A lot of fan favorites in the recently in the past week since we uh, talked about this last week. We have Mike Conley fan favorite. Yep. Thurl Bailey, of course, a fan favorite. Laurie Markkinen, Ricky Green, and Truck Robinson. Also, a lot of these guys are fan favorites because they were great basketball players, yes. <laughs> and that, that helps maybe more than anything. Truck Robinson today, uh, really, I, I said maybe the most underrated jazz player that 
fans in general don't have a great feel for, and that's a broad brush. I get there's going to be listeners who be like, I know everything about Truck. Uh, one of four jazz players ever to make all NBA first team, only played 125 games with the Jazz, uh, but it's the all time rebounds per game leader, all time minutes per game leader for the Jazz. Uh, and, of course, they had to do what they always did. They had to sell him because they needed the money to keep the lights on. But uh, Truck Robinson was the real deal. That guy really was a very good basketball player and just so happened to have his best seasons in, in, in uh, New Orleans. What do you think about Laurie Markkinen at number 17? He has the least games played on the list, but also it is the least games played, but he averages the most points on the he, list as well. He is married to Truck in that same conversation of really high short stints on the team. And Truck played twice as many games as Lowry has. Uh Lowry belongs. I made this comp the other day on the radio show is that, you know, people got mad in 1996 when Shaq was on the NBA's 50th anniversary team. It's like, well, Shaq is the seventh best player in NBA history. And at that point, he'd never won a title. But like we knew it was coming and it came. Uh, Lowry Markinen belongs on this list. He's probably closer to top 10. I will be curious how jazz fans feel about the top 10, which we'll get into early next week. I actually think maybe it's a week from maybe it's Friday. Yeah, maybe it's no, maybe it's next. It's early next week. We're gonna have the number ten overall player. I'll be curious how the fans feel about about who comes in at number ten on this list. But there's a real chance Lowry would knock that guy out of the grouping if he's in Utah for the next you know four or five years and continues to play at this level. In fact, if he does that, he starts knocking on like number five, number six. He starts getting himself into that conversation, especially if the Jazz do any meaningful winning. Next, we can move into the mailbag. Uh, first up, from a Jazz fan, how many positions can John Collins defend? That's a good question. Uh, it's probably two. It might only be one. And I worry if it's only one, his uh, value really probably plummets pretty significantly. I, the four is where he can really defend. I think he can defend fours, but he might not even be able to defend, like, if you want to say Jason Tatum's a four or Jalen Brown's a four. Like, I don't know how well he's defending those guys. Now, if you listen to people who covered the Hawks last year and covered John Collins, they're like, he was probably the third best defensive player. Like, DeJounte Murray's their top, maybe Clint Capella, just because he's a rim protector. But John Collins was right there and was pretty good last year and has made some growth. He's not, I'm going to guard five positions, even though he's long and very athletic. He's not quite that type of player. But if he can defend fours well... And then dip into fives and maybe the occasional three, that would be really beneficial. My guess is it's more four fours, and then he helps occasionally on fives. And he's going to have to play some small ball five for the Jazz. But he probably plays small ball five offensively. And then Kelly Olynyk defends the bigger body on the floor. I think that's probably more likely of what happens for the Jazz next season. I'm not banking on John Collins' positional versatility. But I do think having a guy who... He's not a huge six foot eight, but there's like a lot smaller six foot eight guys out there. And he's so springy and he moves so well that he covers space. Lowry just covers a ton of space because he's seven feet tall and athletic. And then Walker truly is just, you know, he's a he's a black hole at the rim. He just he's gonna swallow everything up. Having those three guys on the floor together is helpful. Those those guys will make you better defensively, especially if you get anything from your perimeter defenders. I agree with you. I think three through five is the correct answer there. He um he said yesterday at Media Day that he has experience playing small ball five, so it would be interesting to see how he will fare. I mean, you're not expecting him to guard the Embiid's and the Yogic's of the world, but um, 
I think it could go well for him. And also, when you're athletic like that, and he is a like a little bit faster, not the fastest, but I think he will be able to guard those positions. Next up, well, we have, a Jazz fan also asked this. I want to finish. This. He says, "How crazy is it to think the Jazz could run a huge lineup of Kelly Olynyk, John Collins, Lowry Markkinen, Taylor Hendricks, and Walker Kessler for spot minutes? Play zone D with uh, Kelly Olynyk playing the five. He said, "I know it's crazy, but how crazy? It's crazy." Very uh, crazy. Yeah, you won't see that. You could see a big lineup of like Chris Dunn, who's six five. I think he's about that size for the Jazz. Maybe if you wanted to put Lowry at the two, like you could probably do that if you wanted to. And then you could go bigger, like John Collins at the three, Kelly at the four, Walker at the five. Like maybe that's as big as you could play. But for all these like out there lineups you can think of, we just so really, truly rarely see them. We just really never see teams do that all that much. I mean, maybe Bryce Sensabaugh at six foot six and as bulky as he is plays the two. And that's really where you get your size. Maybe that's, you know, the biggest lineup the Jazz could conceivably run. I think Lowry is good enough to play the two from a skill position. Uh, so if you wanted to do that, you could. But the Jazz have big options of guard. Talon's a big guard. Jordan's a big guard. Even uh, Keontae George is a pretty big guard. I mean, he's not strong yet. He will get there. But he's six foot four. Like, he's pretty, he's got better height than, than uh, Donovan Mitchell did. So the Jazz will be one of the bigger, more athletic teams in the NBA this season. Look, maybe you could put Lucas Shamanich at the two. Mm. He's kind of played a little bit more of that. He's really big. He's really tall. So you could do tall lineups. It won't be with the bigs that you mentioned, though, a Jazz fan 98. Yeah, if you put a lineup out there that big, you're just going to have guards running through you like it's a Harlem Globetrotters yeah. game. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it wouldn't be pretty. Uh, one more question from Glenn Anderson. Which rookie gets the most minutes? Do you see the Jazz sending Hendricks to the G League? I'm more willing to bet that all three Jazz players get G League minutes, all three rookies get G League minutes, than like Taylor Hendricks doesn't get them. So, yes, I almost promise you they all do. The only difference is if like Taylor or if, Ke- if Keontae George like wins the starting point guard job, he probably never goes there. But walk through the logistics of Keontae George winning the point guard job. Like, let's say he does. And then he struggles 10 games in. Do you pull him and totally kill his confidence by giving it back to Colin Sexton? No. Do you give it to Colin Sexton and then take it away from him midseason because Keontae George is ready to play? No. I honestly, again, it's why I think you start Chris Dunn because you can take the starting job from Chris Dunn 15 games into the season or 20 games into the season and say, thanks, Chris. Now you're our change of pace defender off the bench, but you're going to play every game. But Keontae's the guy. And you just play Colin Sexton as your true six man uh, all year, and, and Jordan Clarkson starts at the two. It's where if I'm trying to like play the finessing the locker room game as far as the emotions go, not trying to rile anyone up. I think that's what you do. And actually, I think there's some history of this with with uh, Will Hardy. Last year, it was clear, maybe even after game one, that Walker Kessler needed to be on the floor as much as possible, and they still started Kelly Olynyk with Jared Vanderbilt. And then you can take the job from Jared Vanderbilt. By the way, Jared Vanderbilt and Chris Dunn are kind of similar NBA players. Like, good guys, role players, definitely belong in the league, but aren't starting on championship quality teams, even though I know Jared Vanderbilt started on the Lakers last year. <laughs> uh, aren't, like, full-time built-in starters that are indispensable on championship rosters. You can take their role away from them, and they're like, well, I'm in the NBA. Life is pretty good. Uh, Chris Dunn is there. Jared Vanderbilt was there last year. You took Jared's job. Not Kelly's job. Uh, you can take Chris Dunn's job. I think it's hard to take Colin Sexton's job. So that's that's kind of my theory of why I could see that. There's a little history of, of that being the case with Will Hardy. 
for which rookie gets the most minutes, I think it's easily Keontae George. Just looking at Bryce Sensabaugh and Taylor Hendricks are both wings. Taylor Hendricks is more of a four, but when you look at the roster, the, the Jazz are stacked on wings. They have so many options there, and when we're talking about can Keontae get the starting job, I think it's fair to say that he will get the most minutes of the rookies. Yeah, the, the guard position, there's so much depth, which is hard, because I think Colin Sexton, Jordan Clarkson all play 25 to 30 minutes. Chris Dunn probably plays 15. And then, yeah, is, you know, do you consider Ochai a guard or is he a small forward, wherever you want to use him? He's probably a guard. He's not necessarily a ball-in-hand guy, but... Uh, yeah, that probably leaves 15 minutes a night, I think, for, for Keontae George right off the bat. I, I think the forward position is going to be hard for uh, for Taylor Hendricks to get on the floor. And look, he's not big enough to play the five. He's not skilled enough to play the three. He's almost purely a four right now. And a lot of those minutes are going to go to John Collins and Kelly Olenek, and maybe Lowry steps in and plays a little bit there. Maybe they carve out 10 minutes a night for him. Uh, it's going to be hard to do, though. And I don't think the Jazz know what some of these guys' bodies are going to look like. You don't know when you're as young as Taylor is, and he's kind of not a tweener, but he could go either direction. It, does he get bigger and then he's, you know, a 4-5? Or, or is he so athletic that he can play 3-4 a la Jonathan Isaac in Orlando? I know we never see him play because he's always hurt, but, like, he's freakishly good when he's on when he's healthy. He's I love that comparison. He never plays. If he could be Jonathan Isaac, you're like— Hell yeah, man. Like, be that every day. That's even more valuable probably than these four or five, you know, the hybrids that we have in the NBA. So if he could be Jonathan Isaac, you you lose your mind that that's like, yes, great. That's a superstar pick. Uh, I just don't. They don't know. I don't know. I don't know if they know what direction to go with his body. They probably have to let him hit like 21 or 22 and see where his muscle mass builds or his athleticism changes. And then decide from there. Whereas, like, Walker Kessler's a five. Like, that dude can only yeah. play the five. He can only ever be the five. It's like DeAndre Ayton saying he's more of a power forward. Like, no, you're not. <laughs> you are not. You never have been and you never will be. That's a stupid thing to say, DeAndre. Uh, so, Walker is a five. I don't know what to make of Taylor Hendricks. And then Bryce, I think coming off a knee injury, needing to develop a lot of his game, and maybe he's the most surprising player and can do more things than I think of, uh, but I think it's going to be hardest for him to see the floor. So, I would say... One Keontae, two Taylor, three Bryce. Outside of the rookies, someone who I'm really interested to see how they do this year is Ochai Agbaji. Yeah. And something I didn't realize, dude is ripped. Oh, dude is shredded. <laughs> he has a, and it's, be, look, part of it is vanity. Because, like, I don't know if you know this, and then our female listenership does. Like, that dude's a supermodel. Like, that is the most attractive player in the NBA. He is striking. I have heard him objectified by more women in my life, not <laughs> fairly, but like every woman I've talked to is like, what's Ochai like up close? Or the women who've seen him up close, like that dude is a dream. And like you can see it, like he's great skin and like he's just like perfect hair and he is extraordinarily handsome. But you're right, he came back this year and he is shredded. He is really, really big. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you won't see it in the uh, media day photos, but the Jazz have been putting out there in the pool in Hawaii. Like, go look at that photo. Like, <laughs> he looks like mini David Robinson. Like, just <laughs> pumped shoulders, huge biceps. Yeah, him being really strong, if he can knock down threes consistently and then just run his butt off, which is what he does, uh, he can be a very helpful contributor. He's not so skilled. He's like not a great dribbler. I don't think he's a terrific passer, but guys who rebound, shoot well, run hard and play defense, are really good NBA players. Ochai could have a breakout year. He's had a crazy 12 months. We talked to him yesterday at, at Media Day. And, you know, remember, he won 
most outstanding player winning a title at Kansas. So, like, came into the league like, am I a star? Like, I was just a star in college. Am I a star? Gets drafted in the lottery by Cleveland. It's like, well, they need a starting small forward. I'm the guy. Gets traded for Donovan Mitchell to Utah. Plays summer league in Cleveland. Doesn't play for the Jazz. Doesn't start with the team. Goes to the G League. Plays for 40 games there, 30 games there. And then is basically thrust into the starting lineup over the final 30 games of the season. Like, he's had a crazy 12 months of life experience much less his career or his basketball experience. So I think just going into a second season of, like, I know what my role is, and it's the same role I played in the Summer League, which, by the way, I thought he was fabulous in the Summer League, playing his role. When he was rebounding, running, playing defense, and taking open threes, I thought he was fabulous. If he can do that this year, and that's all they ask of him, I think he can have a breakout sophomore season. Thank you guys for tuning into the Jazz Notes podcast. We record every single Tuesday. You can check in the afternoon anywhere you get your podcasts. Next week, we will be recapping the Jazz's first preseason game against the Clippers. Getting ready for game two because they'll uh, be playing the Clippers that night. So, yeah, follow Chandler on Twitter at ChandlerHoltKSL. Find me at Ben's Hoops. And always read us at KSLSports.com. We'll be back next week. 